Medvedev. Championship point serves out wide. There it is! Game, set, championship one from Daniel Medvedev. The biggest title of the Russian's career. And he's done it the hard way. He's beaten the top three players. The first player at this tournament to beat the top three on their way to the title. There's an embrace by the two players at the net, but it's all about Daniel Medvedev unbeaten from start to finish. Back-to-back -back titles to end the year. Daniel Medvedev, your champion in London. Three sets against Dominic Team. 4-6, 7-6, 6-4. I think I have uh, most messages in my phone uh, than after any other tournament. And I asked my coach, he has even more. I don't know where he, he gets all these messages from, but uh, it's uh, of course a great feeling always to win the tournament. And uh, especially knowing that it's the last tournament of the year, it's gonna stay there a bit longer than any other tournament. It's really heavy though. Uh, the trophy is really heavy, but uh, it's a nice trophy. I mean, it's uh, really beautiful and uh, passing already last year. And of course, this year, watching all the photos, that actually in our locker we have the photos of Rigor, Sasha, uh, Stefanos holding their trophies. Um, I think all of us uh, are looking at it and like, damn, I would like one like this. Uh, so I got one. <laughs> Dominic is an amazing tennis player. Uh, of course, a really tough match for him because he had his opportunities, I had mine. Uh, never easy to lose a match like this, but uh, he's a great class player, so he congratulated me, said that I was playing amazing and then this is amazing victory. I said that he's an amazing player and hopefully we're gonna have a lot of matches like this. The funny thing is that uh, actually Nikolai Davidenko was commenting on my match on Russian TV, which I didn't know at all. And uh, we got to talk after the match, so I was, I was super happy because I mean, uh, uh, I was 13 years old when he won it. I don't remember where I was at this moment, but for sure watching. And so uh, I'm really happy that uh, we could, yeah, clinch it uh, both ways for Russia on the first and uh, last edition in London. Welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier. And one week on from the last NITO ATP finals in London, we bring you some of our favourite moments and chats from eight days of live broadcast at the O2. Later in the show, we'll hear from Ivan Lendl, Diego Schwartzman, Jürgen Meltzer and Nikolai Davidenko, the very first winner in London, who Daniel Medvedev just referred to there. But a player's achievements are very rarely down to just that one person. Backing Medvedev all the way in London was his coach, Gilles Savara. He spoke with our reporter, Richard Connolly, and was the first to admit that timing was crucial in both of Daniel's biggest wins of the year, back-to-back -back at the Rolex Paris Masters and in London. Two weeks ago was not like this, for example, because uh, Daniel was not in the same mood or the same energy. So, yeah, it's... It's life, you know, it moves a lot. <laughs> well, it moves there, are, a lot. there are certain things as a coach that you can't control. Exactly. Right? I of mean, you, you try, but yeah. he's, he's his own man. Exactly, exactly. And this year, perhaps more than ever, because of the strange circumstances of COVID and being locked down, what was it like for you two? What was your relationship during that moment when tennis was not allowed? Uh, listen, it was very special because uh, when the, 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 the tour stopped, so we were in Indian Wells, 
we thought that we, we, we will be in uh, Miami and finally uh, everything uh, uh, has been stopped at this moment. So we went back to France and uh, it was a Friday, I remember. And at this, this day, Friday was like s uh, 13th of, uh, of March. We knew already that the next Monday, so two or three days later, in France, they will close a tennis club. So as a coach, my job was to think, okay, what we're gonna do? We need to find a place to practice if we don't want to, to lose time or lose, uh, you know, when you're athletes like this, you cannot stop full. I mean, that's my, my vision. So I found people to help me to, to find a, a, a tennis court. We were to practice there on the Monday, the next Monday. And during the practice, I said to Daniel, look, I, I know from police, because I have a friend who works in police, they, they told me that they will, close, they will lock down the country. So we need to, to, to think, to, to take a decision what we're going to do, and I think we need to find a house with a, with a tennis court. Sure. And uh, he said, yeah, you're right, so let's, let's find. And three hours later, we found the same place where we, we, we played, and we rent, uh, rented a house with a tennis court. So... We, we stayed together, uh, uh, his wife, uh, my, my wife and my dog uh, in, the same, in the same house for two months. So it was, uh, was funny, it was funny. But it was good, it was good. Uh, we did a good job, the relation was, was good and close. It's not easy at the same, all the time, but it uh, was, uh, was a good moment. I have to ask you what you did apart from tennis. Uh, did you play games? What, what, what kind of stuff did you do? Me, I take it, I me, take it. my feeling is that I, I felt that I worked every day. So, <laughs> so this, I mean, I laugh about this, but I know it's tough situation for for the world. So, uh, also when I say this, uh, you know, I think yeah. uh, I'm very careful. But uh, uh, yes, I, di I didn't stop. Uh, so these two months for me uh, was like uh, normal uh, work. And um, but yeah, he play, we we played game, uh, video games, uh, yeah, stuff like this. <laughs> but I didn't want to play with him because uh, <laughs> it becomes a nightmare for me uh, when I play against him. Did he do his share of the cooking and the cleaning if you're in the same yeah. house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, because I could be mad if uh, <laughs> you know something was not clean or something like this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was okay. It was, uh, he, he did his job. He did his job. It was, uh, it, was, it was good. Did you talk tennis every day? Or is that just, is it too much? It's easy. With Daniel, it's easy uh, about this because uh, I feel he feels that we don't need to talk tennis every day. Uh, uh, so, and I'm not the coach. Uh, I feel Daniel sometimes. So, I mean, many times that okay, I don't have to talk about tennis, I need to, he makes his job and then it's enough. If he doesn't make his job, then we will talk to, to see what, uh, what, uh, what we need to, to do uh, and adapt, but uh, it was easy. Well, I, I just wonder, because your, your job is, is a coach to make him a better player, but I guess it's also to think about his opponent and to think about the way that you can beat an mm -hmm. opponent. So did you have extra time to think about opponents during lockdown? Uh, I don't remember specifically at this time that I, I thought uh, about his opponent, but of course it's always in my mind to, 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 to have a look uh, on his opponent and 
especially few of them, because I know that uh, he will play against them uh, in, you know, in the last part of big tournaments. So, of course, it's a part of my strategy to, to have a look uh, and to think about stuff uh, to, to, to work uh, about this, uh, these guys. Yeah. yeah. And you know that they're thinking more now about you. Of right? course, because I you're guess, a top team. I guess I don't know, but I guess I mean, uh, yeah, it it should be logical to, to do like this. <laughs> Does that mean that you have to do things differently or better because you know that the opponents are thinking about you? Yeah, it's I don't know if it's uh, different, better. It's it means for me, it's you have always I mean as a coach, but as a player uh, to to improve all the time, you know to to put some yeah, different things, to, to stress more, to push more uh, or differently to, to be a better player. Yeah, to not be in, a, in the same routine all the time because I think it's, uh, it can be a danger to, to, to improve. What you've seen from Daniel, is this him playing close to his best? I mean, where, where, where is his level right now? You know what? Uh, I think uh, I don't know the limit, really. I don't know the limit because I think as Novak, as a team, as a Nadal, when they play like this, you, you can expect them to play better and better. And when they play against a, a top player, to, to play their best, to, to find something more inside them, to, to push them more and more. I think it's, you know, when you are a champion like this, that every match is against these guys make you better and better. That's my, my feeling. So I don't know where is his limit. So Daniel Medvedev was the final winner of the NITO ATP Finals in London, which bookends the tournament's recent history very tidily because the first winner at the O2 was also a man from Russia. Hi, it's uh, Nikolai Davidenko, 2009 NITO ATP champion. My first match against Djokovic. Okay, I lost, but I fighting for a good match for sure. A hardcore victory for Djokovic. He won. And then uh, last two matches in the group, I played good for sure. For me, Nadal was um, like at this time was easy player. <laughs> He's done it. He finishes with a flourish. A wry smile from the Russian. And he knows he's just played one of the best tie breaks of his life. And most important was match against Soderling. And that was this uh, very important match in the group. That's what I won and qualified for the semi-final. Oh, can you believe it? Davidenko can't. He has qualified for the semi-finals. The biggest win for sure it was against Feder in the semi-final in London because I never beat him before and I think it's the most important win in my career because I beat before Djokovic, Nadal, everyone in top 10. At match point against Federer for the very first time in his career. He's done it! And what a victory for the Russian! Perseverance personified. I think it was the biggest luck for me in London and win this match in three sets. And then for sure final already for me was be easy. My tactic in the final was to 
try to get not play long rally like try to attack uh, play three four points like just do feather tactic hitting fast and uh, go give no chance to like to Del Potra to give it any points and was uh, really did I was feeling I just come to the court start and concentrate and play fast every point uh, for sure constraint winning in two sets don't go in three sets <laughs> professional performance so far from Davidenko. Emotion is more 100% coming up, for sure. Like, you don't know what you need to do. You just concentrate 100% and, like, thinking, okay, now every point till the end, dying on court, for sure. Don't need to lose this point. Match point, I was nervous. He's done it. The biggest victory of the Russian's career. When I won, it was amazing. Emotion coming out, everything coming out. You don't believe you won this tournament because I didn't win any Grand Slam and beat uh, top guys. For me, it was amazing. Everybody knows this match against Federer and Del Potro. And everybody watched on TV these matches and uh, remember all these matches. Not only was it the last NITO ATP Finals in London for the time being, the tournament also marked the competition's 50th anniversary celebrations with the great and good remembering their favourite moments across the week with one of Great Britain's finest. Hi, I'm Tim Henman and I'm here with five times NITO ATP Finals winner Ivan Lendl. You know, with your, your professionalism that you brought into your game and therefore I think you changed uh, the way other players approach their fitness, their diet. How, how did that come about? I have been two, three or four in the world for about four years. But I wasn't happy with where I was. So I sat down and thought about it. And uh, I said, OK, what do I need to improve to beat these guys? And then by coincidence, I was flying. I remember that till today. And I watched the movie. It was Rocky. And uh, they had a Versa climber there. And I said to myself a few choice words. And I said, I will be damned if I lose another match in my life if, because the other guy is fitter than me. And that was the turnaround. Wow. What was it like playing at Madison Square Gardens? I loved it. I loved uh, playing the Madison Square Garden. As they say, it's the world's most famous arena. And the building has so much character and uh, so much history. It's just special to be there. So at Madison Square Gardens, you made the final nine times in a row. Everybody talks about the eight US Open finals in a row, which, yes, I'm very proud of that. But I think the nine finals of the Masters is harder. And I tell you why. At the US Open, I have made finals or won and beat only one top 10 player on the way. As at the Masters, you play top 10 player every single match. So first year you make final, you lose to Borg. Second year, you play Gerolitis in the final. You say match point, when did he have match point? I believe he had match point in the third set in the tiebreaker. Correct. Just checking. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Going back to the 88 final against Boris, that rally on match point, what do you remember of it? Well, there is more to it than that to that 88 finals. I was tickled to death 
to be in the finals because I lost my first match to Jakob Hlasek. Then I was getting killed by Agassi. I turned it around and then I beat Tim Mayotte. And I can't remember who I beat in the semis. And uh, in the finals, Boris beat me 7-5 in the fifth set tiebreaker when we had that 37-shot rally and he ended it with the left court back and down the line. Ivan, thanks so much for joining me and uh, look forward to talking again sometime soon. Thanks, Tim. It was great. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. One man experiencing his very first season-ending finals was Argentine Diego Schwartzman. He spoke behind the scenes with social media star Josh Denzel. Diego, welcome to the O2. Thank you very much. Your own locker? Yeah, this is mine right now. I I know that uh, before uh, it was from uh, Russia, so (laughs) it's it's nice to have uh, uh, my locker now here. You're not going to think about putting some Argentinian flags on the wall? I wanted, you know, I wanted, but uh, now here it's nice. I, they have a good pictures and everything here is very nice. I see you've got your, your tennis bag with you. Is there, is there one thing in that bag that you, you have to take with you everywhere you go? Uh, well, I have, yes. Uh, I have uh, three things. One, I show you? Yeah, 100%. You want to see? Uh, in the small pocket, I have the... This is a gift from my grandma. Okay. Uh, she already passed away, so it's very important for me. I have a stone here, like a power stone yeah, yeah. inside there, so always is with me. If it's not the tennis bag, it's a travel bag, but yeah. always I try to carry. And then in the middle, I have the Boca Juniors. The I Boca Juniors, okay. Yeah, Boca Juniors shirt. Yeah. I can't show you the brand because it's not <laughs> Fila, but uh, then I had this hat. What, what is the story behind the hat? It's a gift from my brother to me, like many, many years ago. And I don't remember when, but uh, one time was, I, I think, like giving me lucky. And yeah. from that, I started to, to have in my, in my travel bag. So these three things I, three I things. always carry with me to the tennis match. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how long? This, this has been for a long time that you've had these things. So even from when you're growing up, you've had the same, the same three lucky things. Uh, I think so. The, the hat and the stone from my grandma, yeah, many years ago. And Boca Juniors shirt, start one time and yeah, I, never I, I, like, I like to see, you know, inside yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, it's nice. Your journey into tennis wasn't, wasn't easy. It wasn't the smoothest journey. Can yeah. you kind of give us a little bit of backstory about how hard it was and how how you kind of went out of your way to make sure that you, you got to this stage in your career? Well, ca- coming from South America, you know, it's uh, really difficult. Uh, economic things there is, are, are not really easy, you know. Uh, in Argentina, uh, it's, it's really tough to start playing tennis. The beginning of, you know, any, any sport, it's really difficult. And, you know, the parents, uh, my mom, my, my father, and in every family happened the same. They are trying to work. They are trying to give to you everything to play tennis or play any sport. And it's really difficult. And the beginning was not easy, but uh, I didn't feel like, uh, okay, I, I have to stop or because uh, my family don't have the money, you know, to carry with my career. But uh, after a few years, I started to play better and better. And I have a few opportunities, friends of my father helping me to start playing professional tennis and travel around the world. So uh, I have lucky with people around me and uh, the beginning was not easy, but here we are. Are your family now super proud? They, they saw the hard work that they put in 
has paid off the hard work that you put in. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's sad, you know, to uh, don't have uh, with me here in London. You know, this year it's uh, different, uh, these uh, masters, but, uh, you know, they are in home watching everything, talking to me every single day. So, yeah, I, I, I'm sure they are really proud. <laughs> I heard that you were named after Diego Maradona. Uh, yeah. Is I, this I, true? I, I think 98% of my name, Diego, is because of Maradona. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, at, at at that time, I born in 1992, six years before he did against England. We are here in England. Uh, the goal with the hand. We don't and then to talk the, about the, that. <laughs> you like football? Of course, I like okay. football. Okay, me too. So uh, uh, my my father and my mom. I think everyone who who his name is uh, Diego yeah. between 90s and, and 2000, it's uh, because of Maradona. If you weren't a tennis player, would you think uh, maybe I'll go into the football side of things? I think so, yeah. I mean, I was trying when I was 10, 11, 12 years old to play football, but uh, I realized that after a few years, I, I, I did better with a, a small tennis ball <laughs> than the football ball. <laughs> and it comes up a lot. People talk about your height. But yep. one is, is, what are the benefits of, of being a shorter player? You're the shortest player on the tour. So. Yeah, I think... Being the shortest one, giving me, you know, really strong with uh, with my head, you know, my 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 mind. It's always working and trying to you find a way and trying to find how can I improve, you know, every single shot because I'm not going to have the same strong shots and you know winners or aces like uh, many guys now in the Masters. They are almost two meters. So it's a different, you know, different game. I I try to figure out how to play my game, and uh, every year I was improving something. So that that was the key in my career. Career best season. Yep. What what has been the catalyst? Obviously, Rome was kind of a, a turnaround point. Yep. But was there like a moment where you thought where things just started? You hitting right? You know, what was the, did the training change? Well, you know, in, in between the the pandemic of many months, you know, the the world was crazy and happening a lot of things. I was just focusing my home, trying to practice, trying to do everything to be ready when when the tour coming back. And in US was not easy, you know. The first two, three weeks for me were really tough. I, I was not playing good. I was you know, struggling with my legs, uh, cramping, and, you know, I, I have a pain in my wrist, in my left wrist. So the beginning, after yeah. too many months in home, was not easy. And I think in Rome, I find a way uh, after two rounds really tough for me. But uh, I think the key every year was trying to improve something, trying to get to my to my team the confidence to, you know, talk to me, yeah. uh, try to work hard, try to do everything because uh, it's not easy. You know, I'm already four months, I, I told you before, out from home. So many, many things are happening in, in our mind when, when you are from South America and the tour is really far away. So you need to improve many things. And I think every year I find a way to improve. And that, that's why maybe I'm here. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. As ever, the doubles featured prominently at the finals with some fantastic matches across the week and Richard Connolly tracked down one of the men making his very final appearance. Well, I'm here backstage at the NITO ATP finals with uh, Jürgen Meltzer. Um, Jürgen appearing here at this tournament for the third time as a doubles player 
And Jürgen, we're going to reflect a little bit on your career here, which I hope you'll enjoy. But your career has been a terrific one. 350 wins in singles, more than 370 in doubles, five titles, singles, 17 titles in doubles. I mean, if you told those numbers to yourself at the start of your career, what would you have thought? I would have signed it <laughs> immediately. Um, when I picked up the racket as a kid, you know, you always dream big. You want to you wanna become number one. You want to be the best player in the world. But you realize pretty soon that that's going to be a very tough task. So as soon as I realized the depth in tennis, um, I would have definitely signed off on five singles titles, 17 doubles titles, um, being top 10 singles and doubles. I would, have, I would have definitely agreed to that. And when you picked up a racket for the first time, you picked it up with your left hand, which was important, wasn't it? Because maybe it could have been the other way around. Tell us about that. Well, yes, I do a lot of things with my right hand. For example, I play table tennis with my right hand. I throw a ball with my right hand. I play soccer with my right foot. So it could have been easily my right hand in tennis too. But um, I think it was a great decision. I don't know if I would have been as good if I would have played tennis with my right hand. So it gives you a kind of an advantage being left-handed. And I think I have used that one pretty good throughout my career. Be specific. What, what, is, what is the most advantageous thing? Well, I think we're just fewer that play with the left hand. And so the ball, the spin comes from the other side. You have the advantage of you know, using your lefty serve, like being break point down 40-30 or you know, having a big point to play. It's, uh, most of the times, those big points are played on the ad side when you serve. So it kind of gives you a little bit of an edge to the righty. When you were growing up and you were a talented young tennis player, how much pressure was there on you? Because as an Austrian, you were sort of following in the footsteps of Thomas Muster and people like me, I'm sure, told you that all the time. What was it like? I've heard that once or twice in my career. I'm sure you have. Um, in the beginning, until I was probably 14, 16 years old, it wasn't that bad because, you know, you try to come up, you have those idols. Thomas was one of them. But once I won Wimbledon Juniors, everything kind of changed. And um, people expected, you know, for me to be the next Muster to, you know, we didn't have anybody winning a Grand Slam in Juniors. So they were kind of expecting me to do big things. And it took me quite some time to actually adjust to that pressure to realize, okay, because in Austria it was always like, I was ranked 30 for a long time in my career and people in Austria just said, okay, that's another tennis player. When you compare it to you know, other countries, some of them they didn't even have top 30 players. And in Austria, it was never enough, let's put it that way. And uh, I had to grow up to mature, to actually deal with that pressure. And um, as soon as I did that, well, I did another jump in the ranking. And when I became top 10, that was uh, even then the, the general public realized, OK, this kid can play. What did you do then to deal with the pressure? Um, I think a lot of things come with a certain age, you, you grow up, you, you understand how the media works, you, 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 know, you talk to different people. For me, the biggest change was changing my team. I, when I was, I think it was in 2006 or seven, I stopped with my long-term coach and then I hired a new one. I hired Jochen Nystrom, I took a physio um, with me on tour, Jan Feldhuis. I changed agent to Ronnie Lightcap, who was the coach of Thomas Muster and his agent, so I kind of got more professional. And um, even though I felt like I was before, 
but they showed me what's, what it's really like to be professional. So I think that step was the most important one in my career, realizing what it means to you know, dedicate everything for that one goal. And um, well, it worked out for me and I was very happy about that. And around that time, you won your first title, didn't you, on the ATP Tour in Bucharest, 2006. Yes. And you'd been to a final a couple of times before that. To be a winner, what difference did that make? Oh, it made a hell of a lot of difference. Because um, before that, I've lost several finals. Um, and once, you know, you have that kind of monkey on your shoulders, um, it's, it's never easy to, to get that first win. And it was a very weird situation because I went to Bucharest by myself, no coach, nothing. And when I reached the finals, the coach was thinking about, um, should I come, should I not come? He, he was supposed to fly in on that morning. The flight got cancelled. I played the finals by myself and I won it. So that also gave me that kind of you know, self-confidence of, I can do it by myself. I don't need anybody else. I can rely on myself on the court. And that gave me a big push for the rest of my career. And you had some big results then subsequently. And we're going to jump forward a little bit to Roland Garros at, at 2010 where you played a particularly famous match against Novak Djokovic. Can you tell us the story of that match from your point of view? Well, up to today, actually, I'm still the only guy that beat Novak from being two sets to love down. Um, and it's um, still getting a lot of you know, tweets. Once Novak is two sets to love up and he loses the third set, I have a lot of mentions then, the last player who did, or the only player who did. That must be great. Then. It's great, and it's, um, for me... From Novak, it was probably one match, but for me, it was the match. And um, I just realized also after that match, like, okay, I can beat those guys. I can, I can compete with them. Um, m maybe not on an everyday base, but on a good day, I'm still I'm I'm, I'm able to, to beat those guys. And um, that was very important. I mean, I was two sets to love down, breakdown in the third. He gave me a little opening and I took it and we battled it out and I ended up winning 6-4 in the fifth. Definitely, if you take one single moment in my career, that's definitely the moment that I appreciate most. Yeah. So here you are and you narrowly lost to Rafa in the semi-finals that year as well. So here you are, really a top singles player, but at the same time, competing very hard in doubles. Were you, did you feel different in that manner? Because that, I mean, that was hugely unusual as it is now. Yeah, it was. Um, but for me, doubles was always a passion. I mean, I grew up playing a lot of soccer until actually I was 14. So I came from a team sport. And as you know, tennis is an individual sport. So you're always by yourself. And I just enjoyed the, the chance to celebrate with your partner and at that time, I was playing with one of my best mates, Philip Petschner, um, and we just had a great time on court, and I didn't want to miss out on that. I probably lost two or three single matches because, singles matches because I was tired from playing doubles maybe the night before, but um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I mean, those, those Grand Slam titles with Philip, and also giving me the opportunity to, I think it was in 2011, I was eight in singles and six in doubles. That's something that hasn't been done for a very long time. And um, I don't know if it will be done in the near future because singles players, they tend not to play doubles so much. So um, that's, if, if I have to pick one achievement of my career, it's not a tournament, it's not like some win. It's the fact that I actually managed to be top 10 in singles and doubles at the same time. 
did you do something differently to everybody else? Because I mean, the, the argument that players make, they say, well, yeah, we love doubles, but it's, it's too hard physically. Do you think you did something different or was it just a mindset that you had? I think it was the mindset that I could, you know, increase my confidence level through playing doubles. And because if I had a bad singles week, you know, you win a doubles tournament, you still raise your confidence level and it's okay for the next week in singles. And as I said, I just enjoyed it so much that um, never ever have I thought of, you know, leaving doubles out. I, and when I stepped on court, I wanted to win. So that's, that's probably, probably the way I was raised, the way I was, you know, taught. And um, I'm actually really happy about it that it was that way. I mean, I played 136 matches in 2010. I don't know when was the last time somebody did that. 136? That must be close to some, I mean, I don't know if it was ever somebody played more, maybe back in the days, but um, I think since, since I did it, I think nobody else did it. That genuinely is breathtaking, and I'm sure it will be for people watching and listening. Um, it was 2011 then that you were so good in singles and doubles that you came very close to qualifying for the ATP finals in both. You were here at the O2 in doubles and quite close in singles. How close did it get? It got really close. Um, it was actually at the end of 2010. Um, I played a match against Roger in Paris, the quarterfinals, Paris per se, I think to have a chance to qualify. Um, in the end, I missed to be an alternate, I think by 45 points. Um, so I finished 11. Um, one match, really? Yeah, it's one match. Um, and you know, when you go back, and look at the whole season, how many matches you have played for 45 points that you probably could have won. It's a nail-biter, but um, I was happy. I mean, I was, I was in a good position. I, I came here to play doubles. Uh, I, watched, I even practiced some single sets because people, I was still okay to you know, play with the others. Being lefty um, helped a little bit. I remember I practiced with, with Andy Roddick, who was a good friend of mine. Um, so it was, I kind of felt I... I could have belonged there too, so that was, that was nice. You're, you're back here again in doubles, of course. What, what does it mean as you're coming towards the end of your career to be able to be part of the, the tennis elite once more? It means a lot to me because it just shows that even though I'm yeah, at a certain age where I'm very close to retirement, uh, I still have the level to compete with the best in doubles. And that was always my goal. I want to go out on my own terms, but I want to also go out at a high level where nobody's, you know, talking behind your back and saying, you know, what the heck is he still doing on court? I mean, he's too old, he's too slow. They don't do that, do they? I hope they don't, they don't do that about me because, um, no, I, I felt like I, I found the right moment to retire in singles and um, I think I also will find the right moments to retire, moment to retire in doubles. You're a dad now, you know, you, you have the family commitments. Is that part of the decision? Life's kind of moving in a different direction. I mean, could the body go, how long could the body go on in, in doubles? I probably would have one more year or maybe two more years of uh, doubles inside me. But um, as you said, I'm a dad. Uh, I want to see my son grow up. I had this great opportunity to work for the Austrian Tennis Federation from uh, February on. It's kind of somehow underestimated in Austria when the level of tennis players we have produced in the last three decades because we have always had one guy that was able to compete at the top and um, this is something for such a small country that I think is undervalued 
but um, having Dominic now, like for me, future number one in the game, he will, when he wants he stopped, he will be a multiple slam winner. Um, and having now the opportunity with the Federation to basically live off him a little bit and, you know, use that momentum that he creates to get new kids to that sport is uh, something I'm looking forward to. It's a big challenge. It's also a big responsibility, but uh, I'm happy to take that on and um, I'm actually really looking forward. Probably if that job opportunity wouldn't come up, I would have maybe played another year, but no regrets and I'm, I'm happy to go out on a high. But COVID does make things complicated, doesn't it? Because I've, I've read that you'd like to go out with spectators there. Of course you would. So how is that factoring into your thinking? Well, that's the reason um, I'm not retiring after the London finals, because um, I felt like I deserve having a crowd and I could say goodbye at my last match. And um, while well, I said I'm going to play in Australia for sure, I'm going to do an okay preseason, I'm gonna, I want to be ready. And then I, on the side note, I put, um, I discussed it with the Federation that I'm allowed to play French and Wimbledon. So it would be great to, to play Wimbledon as my last tournament. It was always my favorite tournament, almost my favorite slam. And um, in the back of my mind, um, Philip Petschner still has a protected ranking of 80. So that would mean if he's somehow healthy, we would get into Wimbledon and could play somehow like a last dance. And uh, that would be very nice. Just want to finish with talking about your home country, Austria, because you did say goodbye in singles in Vienna, where you won a couple of times. Will those memories be amongst the most special for you as well? Winning at home is, is special. Um, in the beginning of my career, it was... Uh, not always easy to play at home, dealing with the pressure and um, sometimes even failing and, you know, disappointing the crowd. It's, it's something that every tennis player has to live through. But um, the older I get and the more confidence I had, I enjoyed it. Um, and winning in 2009 and 2010 at home is definitely one of the things I will never forget and I will always cherish. And also, I mean... I won my last singles match in Vienna because I couldn't play against Kevin Anderson after I beat Milos Raonic when I retired in singles. But um, this was also something, you know, having an almost full centre court in Vienna, beating still a great player in Milos um, was something to go out on a good level. And that's, um, I'm happy for that. Our thanks to Jürgen Meltzer and indeed to everyone who spoke with our team during the last season-ending championships at London's O2. The finals now move to Turin from 2021 and rest assured ATP Tennis Radio will be there again to bring you live ball-by-ball -ball commentary as we do at each of the Masters 1000 events throughout the year. In the meantime, join us next week when Gigi Salmon, Miles McLagan, Barry Cowan and Chris Bowers will bring you part one of a unique programme as they build their ultimate player from stars past and present. Starting with the serve, the forehand, slice backhand, and the crowd pleaser that is the top spin backhand. That's all for this week. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Join us next time. 